Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we will read together verses 22 through 38, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting For the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, as you've given us your word, Once more, we ask you that you would give us your spirit, that these black words on this white page might be much more than that, that somehow they might live for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. We are uh, still in the Christmas season. Uh, when you've had a good experience with something, you like to savor it, don't you? You like, to, you like to let the aroma of it sort of hang around. You like to let the, the memory of it stay with you, kind of stick with you, cling to you. Uh, in my judgment, uh, Christmas is over way too quickly for most folks. So my guess is that a lot of trees are coming down today and a lot of lights are going back in boxes Uh, Not the case here. The poinsettias are here until you take them after the service. The greenery will be here until after Epiphany, January 6th. And we're in the Christmas season between Christmas Day and Epiphany. And Epiphany is the 
the celebration, the, the feast, if you will, in the, in the church's year in which we celebrate the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Son, not just as a gift to a particular ethnic group, but as a gift to the whole world. It's a gift to the whole world, to the nations of the earth. And so we're still in Christmas and still reflecting on it and thinking about it. And in this passage where we've read this morning, Luke 2, verses 22 to 38, uh, we, see, we see Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and this character Simeon and then, and then this woman Anna and Mary and Joseph are coming to Jerusalem, probably from Bethlehem. The text tells us that they went up to Jerusalem. That's verse 22. You literally go up to Jerusalem. They probably hadn't gone back to Nazareth. They were probably still in Bethlehem. And now we're about six weeks after the birth of Jesus. And they come to the temple to do a couple of things. They come to the temple to present Jesus as Mary's firstborn according to what the law required. The Old Testament stipulated that the firstborn male child be presented to God, set apart as belonging to God. That's what they're doing. This is some 33 days after Jesus was circumcised, also fulfilling the law. So now we're about six weeks into the life of the incarnate Son of God, and Jesus is being presented. And then then there's this other matter that is that is done as well, that is taken care of as well. Mary has to offer a sacrifice for herself. And that sacrifice is either a lamb or in the case of those who were poor, the law made permission for the sacrifice to be a couple of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's the sacrifice that Mary offers. And that is a clue, that is a That is a very clear identifying mark that Joseph and Mary were impoverished people. They were not well-to-do folks. They couldn't afford a lamb. And so they made the alternative sacrifice for Mary. They come into the temple to present Jesus and for Mary to make this sacrifice for herself. They meet this man named Simeon. Simeon is one of those characters I can't wait to meet. Uh, Simeon is one of those people who appears and then he just vanishes. We know nothing about him. We don't know what tribe he comes from. We don't know whether he's tall or short, thin or fat. We don't know if he's young. We don't know if he's old. Although, there is this sort of hint that Simeon was an older man, one who was waiting, which we'll come to in a minute. And after he has this encounter with Joseph and Mary and Jesus and sings his little song, he simply vanishes. And we don't hear another thing about him. Interesting, fascinating character. And while we don't know anything about him, Simeon is one of those characters who serves as a kind of a portal, if you will, a kind of a doorway. As you look at Simeon and you listen to the things that he said and you read the things that Luke tells us were characteristic of him, he becomes a kind of a portal, a kind of a doorway through which we can step 
to think about, to reflect upon some of these characteristics of Simeon, things said about him and things that he says himself. He's kind of like that wardrobe, you know, that wardrobe into which and through which Lucy stepped into the world of Narnia. Simeon's like that. He's a doorway. And he's just sort of stepped through that doorway. There are some remarkable things to be discovered. Let me give you three words that come right out of the text. Three words, among other things, that we could talk about this morning that are that portal, that are that doorway. Three words, waiting, consolation, and peace. Waiting, consolation, and peace. The text tells us that Simeon was a righteous and a devout man, and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let's remind ourselves of what the scriptures mean when they refer to someone as righteous and devout. Because, it, because it's an important thing to consider as you think about Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's righteous. He is devout. Let's remember what that means, what that sort of language suggests. When the Bible describes someone as righteous and devout, this is not a description of someone whose moral and spiritual excellencies place him or her in a different category, living at some higher level or on some higher spiritual plane. Someone who we stand apart from and admire and perhaps in our more sane moments would long to be like. That's not what it means when the scriptures speak of someone who is righteous and devout, as though this person, righteous and devout, were so righteous and devout that God is compelled, constrained by that righteousness and by that devotion to bless someone like Simeon. Remember back to the earlier part of Luke's gospel, the first chapter and the fifth First, we've seen similar language used with respect to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were also judged to be righteous. And the text there says that they walked in all the commandments of the Lord. Remember what that means and understand that that is true of Simeon as well. And if you remember what that means, you will remember that when the Scriptures describe Zechariah and Elizabeth as righteous and walking in all of the commandments of the Lord... Those commandments include all of the commandments that have to do with the necessity of sacrifice, leading up most especially to the sacrifice that is offered on the Day of Atonement. Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon took seriously all of the commandments of the Lord and everything that lies beneath those commandments. So they didn't just embrace the moral code. They embraced the code, the commandments of God that reminded them of their own need of a Savior. Because all of those sacrifices are there in the Old Testament because of a fundamental problem, right? A fundamental problem that you have, that I have, that Simeon had, that Zechariah and Elizabeth had, and it is the fundamental problem of sin. 
that four-letter word that our culture really, and honestly way too much of the church culture, just doesn't really want to embrace. It's a problem. It's a problem. If you read through the first eight chapters of Leviticus, you'll see something repeatedly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book from the beginning. If you read through those first eight chapters of Leviticus, you will see something happening repeatedly. You will see people making sacrifices. And you will see the one making the sacrifice, putting his hands on that sacrifice. And the reason for that doesn't become clear until Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement with the whole nation surrounding the high priest, the high priest places his hands upon the head of the scapegoat and confesses the sins of the people. And all of that business previously through those first eight chapters of a a father or a priest or a tribal head or someone else placing his hands upon the head of a sacrifice without comment, all of that is brought clear and into focus on the Day of Atonement. And you begin to understand that the reason for the placing of the hands upon any sacrifice is this idea that as that happens, God transfers the sins of the guilty one ultimately through the high priest to the scapegoat. And the scapegoat then bearing the sins of the people, carries them out into the wilderness. It is, folks, the most existentially dramatic moment in the life of Israel. The most personally, existentially dramatic moment in the life of Israel. Oh yeah, there's the parting of the Red Sea. Oh yes, there is the Passover night where blood is spread across the doorpost and lintels. But if you are a thinking, reflecting Israelite watching what is happening on the Day of Atonement, for you that becomes the most existentially dramatic moment in your annual cycle of festivals. Because it's that moment where the sins of the people are removed from them and transferred through the high priest to the scapegoat who bears the sins of the people away. And the scapegoat never comes back. Simeon understood that. But you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He was waiting for something more. He was waiting for something more. Something more than an annual, an annual celebration of forgiveness. Something more than the cycle, the repeated cycle of sacrifices. Something that meant real cleansing. Something that meant real forgiveness. Simeon understood. Something that the Pharisees really didn't understand. The Pharisees took pleasure in the present, in the moment. They took pleasure in their own ability to conform to these standards. But Simeon knew that it was imperfect, that it was partial, that it was pointing to something else, and he was waiting for something more. 
He was waiting for a real consolation. Now pause and think about that for just a minute. Whether with Simeon or anybody else in the Old Testament or the New Testament on either side of the cross, there's always a future focus. There's always something more. There's always something bigger. There's always something better. The present moment is never the moment of true and deep and lasting and permanent consolation. The heart is constantly waiting for the more. I've told you this story before, the story of a friend who is Greek and whose family is this big Greek family. And at the time of this story, there were only two grandchildren in this big Greek family, a five-year-old girl and a and a seven-year-old boy, and all of these aunts and uncles, and all of these grandparents, and all these people brought all of these gifts to the home of the patriarch, and the two kids, for a couple of hours, did nothing but rip open presents. And after ripping open all of these presents, piling wrapping paper and boxes in a big heap, the seven-year-old boy collapsed on the heap, looked up at his uncle, and said, More. It never satisfies. It's never the final thing. And you see that in Simeon, but you see it also in Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Then the writer says, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. People who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're waiting. Right? Abram wasn't waiting for that little sliver of real estate at the end of the Mediterranean. He was waiting for something bigger, something more permanent. So was Moses. You can read the same sort of thing about Moses in Hebrews 11, who considered disgrace with Christ to be of greater value than all the possessions of Egypt. He's waiting. He's forward-looking. He sees something out there. And it's bigger in his vision than any of the prosperity he enjoyed as the prince of Pharaoh. And supremely, Who's the supreme forward looker? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the supreme waiter, the supreme forward looker, waiting, anticipating the fullness, the greater 
reality. Barbara and I saw the film Saving Mr. Banks this last week. Ah, you enjoyed it, didn't you? It's really an interesting study to me. It's the story of Walt Disney's relationship to P.L. Travers, the one who created the Mary Poppins character. And it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And each of them, each of them, Disney and Travers, each of them was driven by an insatiable appetite for something more. I'm not going to give it away. You go see the film. There was an internal compulsion, an internal drive, an impulse to fix, to alter, to change, to bring hope to a broken world, a world that, like the two of them, has been badly hurt, badly damaged, badly wounded. Driven by a longing for more. And it's deep within us, isn't it? Whenever I think of this waiting thing, I think of, I think of all these songs. I mean, they just flood into my head. Beginning with the 1943 Bing Crosby song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Which is about a GI, World War II GI in 1943, who imagines being able to be home for Christmas, but who can't be because he's fighting a war. All the way down to Sarah McLaughlin. Spend all your time waiting. Spend all your time waiting for a break that will somehow compensate for the inadequacies in your own soul. Disney was driven by it. P.L. Travers was driven by it. You're driven by it. Simeon was waiting for it. There's a great difference between Disney and Simeon, isn't there? A great difference. Folks, this is very powerful and very poignant. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Disney was not. Somebody surely has pointed this out to you, that if you walk Main Street, At Disneyland or Disney World, there is one institution you will not find represented on Main Street, and that one institution is the hope of the world, the church of Jesus Christ. Driven by the same impulse, but in the hands of Walt Disney, all it is is a fantasy world with sparkling streets, and cherubic smiles everywhere. But nothing, nothing to cleanse and give lasting consolation. That's the next word, consolation. For Simeon, there was a true more. There was a true consolation. The word that's used in the text is a word that comes over in the hands of the translators into this word consolation. Just about all of the versions use the word 
consolation, the consolation of Israel. And by the way, Simeon wasn't the only one who was waiting. The reason I read through the rest of the passage is because there's this woman, Anna, 84 years old, and she's waiting, and there are a whole lot of other people who were waiting, and Joseph of Arimathea was waiting as well. There were a lot of people who were waiting. And whether it's consolation or the kingdom of God or the redemption of Jerusalem, it's all one. They're waiting for the more. This word consolation, our English word, comes from a couple of words, the prefix, which means with, cum, with, consolation, with solace, with solace, right? To soothe. The original word in, in the Old English means of good, mu- of good mood, or to amuse, or to please, With solace. So with pleasing, right? Soothing, consolation. There's there's something wrong. I've I've got this, woke up with it two days ago. I've got this scratchy thing in my throat, so don't shake hands with me after the service. You know, what have I been doing? I've been eating these horrible tasting pills, these lozenges that just work your mouth into this. You can't taste anything. It's awful. Why do you do that? Soothing, consolation, medicine, right? Consolation, a medicine for the soul. But what's really interesting is what that word translates. And maybe some of you remember this from a couple of years or so ago. The word that consolation translates is the word paraclesis. Paraclesis. Again, a a Greek word. Two words make it up. Para and kaleo, to call alongside. To call alongside. In classical literature, it's used of someone who was summoned into a court of law who comes alongside to support and to defend and to protect the innocence of the one who is accused. Someone called alongside. That's a technical use of the word. But the word takes on so many nuances of meaning and significance, and I wish we had two hours to do this, but can't. The word appears over 130 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. Parakaleo, paraklesis. It's also used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint. It's used to translate Hebrew words for compassion and comfort and solace. Listen to some of the passages where this is used. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort, comfort. I'm sure you've observed this. I'm sure the illustration has been used a brazillion times. But don't you find it interesting that when Handel's Messiah, when the libretto was composed, was written for Handel's Messiah, the first spoken words, sung words, are the words comfort. Comfort. Console. Paraclesis. 
Isaiah 49, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult all the earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51, verse 12, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the Son of Man who is made like grass? That'll preach, won't it? I'm the one who comforts you. Why do you keep looking to these other things that can bring no comfort? It's fleeting. It's partial. But I, the Lord your God, paraclesis you, comfort you. Isaiah 61 The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Isaiah 66 Verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. Simeon knew those passages. Simeon knew the word paraclesis, parakaleo. Simeon knew that what God designed and intended to do was not remain aloof, not remain distant, but draw near. Folks, and I I see folks here whom I do not know. I have to say this for you because I don't know you. And I feel responsible to say this. I trust you will listen to what I'm saying. I trust you all will hear what I'm saying. And remember that in the world's religions, there is only one religion in which the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the ends of the earth, designs to and is pleased to be the one who draws near, who comes down. In all of the other religions of the world, you've got to go up. You've got to get there. You've got to know something or achieve something or be something in order to rise to the level of the God. But see, Simeon heard these words. He knew that word and he understood the scriptures to teach that this great God of heaven and earth one day, no longer remaining distant, would himself draw near, would come alongside, would be a paraclete and would comfort and console his people. And he couldn't wait for that day to arrive. And God, by the Holy Spirit, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, spoke to him the sweetest words that he had ever heard and ever would hear. You will live until the day you see this salvation. You'll not die before it comes. move on into the New Testament. 
I've just got to give you a couple of references. You move on into the New Testament. You see, we're stepping through a portal. We're stepping through a door. We're crossing over a threshold. We're moving into a world a world that Simeon knew and understood and we're stepping through that portal through his biography and his spiritual understanding. And we're hearing this word that we so long to hear in our souls, consolation. And it's a word, isn't it, it, that is used both of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. See what I mean about a breadth and diversity of meaning? It's used in John 14, verses 15 through 18. Jesus knows his disciples. He is the God of heaven and earth who is drawn near to his people. He has gathered these close to him. He has been their paraclete. But now, do you know what they fear? You can read the passage. They fear being left alone. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And how will he come? The Father will send another paraclete, another comforter. The Father will send the Holy Spirit who will not just be a replacement, but who will in fact be me. You see, the Spirit, you've got to remember this, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. And John 14 makes very clear that when the Spirit comes, He will come as the Spirit of the Father and the Son, and He will be for the disciples spiritually, really and truly, in their hearts, in their souls, what Jesus was when He was incarnate and walking with them. He will comfort them. He will lead them. He will direct them. He will console them. He will be much more but not less than those things. I will send you another comforter. I will not leave you alone. And then 1 John 1, verse 8, and through verse 2 of chapter 2, John writes, "I'm, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. See, he's acknowledging He's acknowledging what Simeon knew, what Zechariah and Elizabeth knew, what the whole Old Testament is pervaded by. He's not hiding. He's not denying. He's acknowledging the reality of sin. And he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And this is a rough paraphrase. But John says, look, I get who you are. And here's what I want to say to you. When you do sin, remember, you have a paraclete, Jesus, the righteous one, who stands at the right hand of the Father. He is your advocate. He is the one who before the Father's presence pleads the sufficiency of his own life, his own death, his own resurrection. So you need not be afraid. When you confess your sins, you acknowledge your sin, done. You have an advocate, a paraclete, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Simeon was waiting something for something more. And holding that baby in his arms, that six-week-old 
baby. He was holding the consolation of Israel and everything that that would mean. The hope that there would be something more than the law. The hope that there would be no more repetition of sacrifice, but there would be a final sacrifice that would bring true cleansing from sin. He actually alludes to it in his words to Mary. Mary, a sword is going to pierce your own heart. Here's Mary, her six-week-old baby. And Simeon is talking about his death, a death that would pierce the soul of Mary, but which would be the final sacrifice that would bring real and lasting cleansing. He was waiting for the consolation that meant more than a physical temple. It meant Emmanuel, God with us, not merely in a house of stone, but dwelling in us, being with us, accompanying us every step of the way, being our advocate. And then there's this final word, and this is the word that I want to ask you to reflect upon. Jesus, Jesus the paraclete, promising the Holy Spirit as a paraclete. Simeon sees all of this, sees the fulfillment of what is promised, and he has peace. He has peace. Now that's the question for you to wrestle with this morning. For you to ask yourself about. Where do I go for peace? Where do I go for peace? Simeon was so at rest. Think about this. Simeon was so at rest that he could walk out the door and die. Now dost thou let thy bondservant depart in peace. I can die. Because I have seen the Lord's Christ. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that? I can walk out of here and if I breathe my last breath before I get to my car, my heart is at rest. I am at peace. Because my sins are forgiven and I have an advocate with the Father. Because Emmanuel, God with us, accompanies me every step of the way. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in me. The Spirit of the Father and the Son has made me to be His temple, made me to be His dwelling place, and He will never depart from this temple. Every step of the way, He will accompany me. And then this King of glory is going to return. There is a future focus to this, just as there is all across the Old Testament. As Moses saw, as Abram saw, there is a future focus. As we've seen in previous weeks, Mary saw it. Zechariah saw it. Christ, your advocate, the Spirit taking up residence in you and giving you the assurance of everything that P.L. Travers and Walt Disney long for but tragically never understood. A world in which things are not just spit and polished externally in some superficial way, but a world in which things are fully and completely restored and renewed. Simeon saw that. 
and his heart was at rest. Your heart can be at rest this morning. That rest will be found no place other than the baby grown to be a man, living a perfect life, dying a death, being raised never to die again, and now reigning at the right hand of the Father. Your heart can know peace. It is to be found in Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you've come to deal with the problem of sin, to deal with our tragic aloneness in this world, and you have come to put everything right. Oh God, by your grace, would you give us grace more and more to see and apprehend these things that our hearts might be at rest. Thank you, Jesus, that this is what you give. We pray in your name. Amen.